How was your guys' 4th of July? Really good? Right on. So we had a bunch of, I got little kids, so we invited a bunch of young families and little kids over to my mom's house just to light some fireworks off because that's super fun. So we had a bunch of little ones because they're all kids under the age of seven, so they're mostly quiet. We were avoiding any of the loud ones. We hit some and put those away and keep moving. And we did this one big fireworks, super fun. But then there's these little sparklers. These little sparklers are rad, but they, they really don't want to light. But when they do light, they light really hot and really fast. And then you arm the children with these little torches, right? And they're, they're waving them in each other's faces and they're running around. The issue was, is you would get one lit and hand that to a kid and use that one to light the next and the next. And then by the time you got the last kid, their sparkler, the first kid's sparkler is gone. So they don't get to enjoy them at the same time. And so the box is right there. It says very clearly on it, you like one at a time. And so I go, well, dude, let's just do nine, right? So I get nine in my hand, I put it together. And Braden, my brother-in-law, he says, hey, you know, I really don't think it's a good idea. I think you should do one at a time. And that's where my brother-in-law got his nickname, which is Killjoy, right? <laughs> so we ignored Killjoy. And we, I put nine of these together and I get it and it lights. And then what happens is when one lights, it lights the other one, which lights the other one. And then the heat is like exponential. So it was just really bright, really quick. And then it was gone, just. <sighs> and what happened is the hand I was holding it in, this finger, the heat, threw the skin off, like, like the Red Sea, you know? Like the skin was just part. It's like if you took a banana peel and you peeled it from the center and just folded it back. And I'm looking at it, looking at unpeeled banana, no pain. And I go, that's not good. So I go upstairs, we fold it back and tape it. And now it just looks like a gas station hot dog that was left on the roller for too long. But what happened is someone created something left very clear instructions. Hey, here's how you use this and enjoy this and have fulfillment in it and everyone's gonna have a good time. And I heard a little voice in my head say, he doesn't know more than you, he's holding out on you. You're your own king, you can make your own decisions. And then I got burned. And it's the greatest summary for sin, right? <laughs> and we're in Genesis. And in Genesis, there's a narrative that's being woven together. For the Israelites, the original audience is these brick-baking slaves that had just been released from Pharaoh's grasp. They're wandering in the desert for 40 years, and they're being told all of these things about God, getting them to know who God is so they can trust and obey him as their king and as their God. They don't know him as their God. And through these stories, they're getting to know him. And so in Genesis, what we've learned so far, because we're in chapter seven, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. We've seen about God so far is in the beginning, there was God and God is the creator and the sustainer of everything. He's the subject, he's the theme, and he's the hero of not just Genesis or of the Bible, but of all of human history. And God is perfect. And everything that God makes is good and he's, it's perfect. And then God makes people and people choose cursing over blessing and they choose to rebel against God. They say, hey, you know what? I'm gonna be my own king and decide for myself what's right and what's wrong. There's a serpent who says, God's holding out on you and they choose to listen to him. And as a result, human beings have hearts that now look like gas station hot dogs 
where they're a little wrinkled and burned up and messed up and are marked by sin. And God has a choice right then and there that he can either wipe out humanity and be done with people, and he'd be right to do so for them rebelling against him and rejecting him, or God can be patient and God can give them opportunity to repent and to draw near to him and to deal with sin. And so what we see right here is God is exceedingly patient. From the period of time when Adam and Eve sinned till Noah, the Bible lays out how old people were and how old their sons and daughters were. It's been 1,656 years from Adam to Noah. 1,656. Is God super patient? Dude, I yell at the microwave right? God is super patient, giving people opportunity to repent and to come back to him. But what happened is, what you saw last week is everyone's actions and their thoughts and intents of their heart was only evil all of the time. That everyone everywhere was evil, doing wicked things, seeking evil things, and it grieved God's heart that he made us. And so in this period of time, there's only one person who walked with God and his name's Enoch and God pulled him out of there. And there's another guy that God shows grace to and he decides to love and to save him and his name is Noah. And so a flood is coming. God saves Enoch from it and God saves Noah through it. Noah and his family, they receive grace. It's the first time that you see grace or favor shared in the Bible. And Noah's take is the... Second Peter tells us that he's teaching and he's preaching about God. He's trying to convince his neighbors and his friends, hey, you guys need to repent. You guys need to stop this. It's family members. If you think about the world that they're living in and the ages that they've lived, Noah gets to be 600 years old before the ark is completed. His dad, if they were in that same sphere around each other, would have known Adam. Isn't that crazy? That is nuts to me. That blows my mind. You know the guy that darn messed up who walked with God every day and the people don't choose to repent and walk with God. It's crazy. The people just get more and more wicked and more and more evil. And there's obviously a bunch of spiritual stuff that's going on that we looked at last week. But Noah is talking and preaching about God for 120 years as he's building this ark and nobody listens, no one cares and no one gets saved. And so imagine if you got to live the 800 and 900 years that they did in the Bible and you're an engineer or you're a doctor, or you're a carpenter, how amazing would you be at your trade? You would have honed that in. You'd be really, really, you would have seen everything. You'd have come up with every plan for everything. You've got 800 years, 900 years to really get solid at your craft. Well, in that same way, so did all the criminals. Imagine criminals living 800 or 900 years, and there's no law, and there's no recourse, and it's just constantly wickedness and evil. The cartels and the mafia is just getting worse and worse and worse. And that's the scenario that's being painted for us in the Bible is the trajectory of humanity has now gone so deep and so low and so wicked that God says, you know what, I'm done. I think sometimes we forget the capacity for human wickedness. Like, I don't know if you've ever read, the worst thing I've ever read, I don't know if it was an essay or a book, but it's called Pol Pot's Killing Trees. It is the most horrific 
act of history I've ever heard, just the genocide and the way that they carried that through under Pol Pot's regime. And that was everywhere for these people, just nonstop wickedness, nonstop evil. And there's one guy named Noah who looks like an insane man building a giant boat at home for 120 years. And so God, last week, he said, there's going to be judgment for sin. I'm going to have a hard reset. We're going to start over. It's been 1,656 years, and now we're pulling the plug on it. And so that's where we come into chapter seven. Judgment has been declared, and now the flood is beginning. So Genesis chapter seven, verse one. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. How many times in scripture does it seem like God is just looking for one person to say, hey, hey, I'm here. How many times does it seem like God is looking for one person in a bad, dark situation to just stand up for what is right and to speak truth and to say, hey, that's wrong and my family's not gonna participate in it. Like, look at these texts. It's Isaiah 6, 8 says, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And then Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Like God's looking over the earth. He doesn't see anybody. Who am I gonna send? You have Ezekiel. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They've oppressed the poor and the needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Therefore, I've poured out my indignation upon them. I've consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. You have Abraham as he's looking over Sodom and Gomorrah and God tells Abraham, I'm gonna wipe them out because of their wickedness. And Abraham says, no, you won't wipe away the righteous along with the wicked, right? You can't do that. And so he says, what if there's 50 righteous people in that city? God goes, okay, for 50, I'll spare it. Everyone goes, okay, what about 45? You won't wipe away 45 people. And God goes, okay, for 45, I'll spare it. Okay, 40, what about for 40? You wouldn't do it to 40. God goes, okay, for 40, I'll spare it. Abraham goes, okay, there's gotta be 30. For 30 righteous people in that whole city, you'll spare it. God goes, I'll spare it for 30. Gets him down to 20, gets him down to 10. And Abraham leaves that conversation going, I am certain in that city, there's 10 people who will say, hey, that's evil, I'm not gonna participate in it. And it's not there. There's only one little family. And even then, part of the family's falling apart and doesn't obey and doesn't follow the Lord. I think for you and me, we can often find ourselves in situations, in family circumstances, in relationships where it just is like dark and like the people that we're around are not following the Lord. And it just seems like everyone that we're talking to is pursuing wickedness and evil. And we can have this attitude where we just shut up and we go, all right, well, I'm just gonna keep to myself. When really I think God might be saying, I have put you there for a purpose and a reason. There's a reason I've called you to be here. There's a reason that you're sitting in that job with those coworkers every single day, with those family members. There's a reason that you're tied up relationally with them. One of my favorite worship leaders of all time, his name is Dustin Kentrew. He showed up to church one day and he's uh, the singer of a band called Thrice. 
And he was sitting in church and the guy was leading worship. And he said, he said that he was praying to God and he said, this music sucks. Like this, oh my gosh, this is the worst thing I've ever heard. And he feels like God told, told him, yeah, that's why you're here. That's why I made you. And then like his whole perspective changed. He goes, oh yeah, that's why I'm here. I was just use my talents and my giftings and my abilities that God has entrusted to me to help further his kingdom even in this spot. When I see something that's wrong, when I see something that could be better, God has equipped me and built me in such a way that I'm supposed to engage and not say, okay, I'm not gonna be a part of that. People who are supposed to advocate and to do good in Noah's time are not. And I think you see that today in our jobs and in our school systems and in our town. The wise act like fools. The leaders are sheep. There's nothing godly going on. And over and over, I think God is looking for even one who's going to stand up and be righteous. And here's the other thing that I think is so fun and crazy. Noah looks like a total fool to his community and to his family. He's been building this ark for 120 years. He's building it in a desert. And a lot of theologians believe that it has not rained up until this point on the earth, that there was a layer of water, a mist coming up from the ground, whatever, it didn't rain. So it's just desert and it's super humid all of the time and the humidity is enough to water everything to where there's great vegetation. And he's in the middle of the desert building this giant boat. He looks so dumb. There's no way to say that this guy does not look dumb. He's building a giant, he's spending all of his time on it. He's spending all of his money on it. All the money that this guy has is going into building this giant endeavor and an, an act of obedience to God, and his reputation is in the toilet for it. He's the crazy guy who builds boats, who builds one boat, not even plural. He is the crazy guy building a giant boat in the middle of the desert. It's probably become an attraction for his little town that people come to see it, to mock him and laugh and leave. Like it's, it's become this whole big thing. And for you and me, I'm looking at this going, man, do I love God in my obedience to the Lord? Do I love him in a way where I could say, I love him more than my time. And I love him more than my money. And I love him more than my reputation. Like, am I pursuing God in such a way that I don't care if I look like the crazy guy? In my obedience to the Lord, I don't look, care if I look like an insane person. Or if I'm so countercultural that I don't fit in with what social media says is good or true, it can be projected out there. Am I someone who says, I love God more than my time, money, and reputation? Because Noah does, and as a result, his family gets saved. And so verse two says this. God says, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. Clean and unclean animals, clean is what God's people are allowed to use in worship and in sacrifice for following the Lord and the unclean or not. Verse three, and seven pairs of birds of the heaven also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days, that's the time frame. it's coming. You've built this for 120 years. In seven days, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So imagine the conversations that Noah is having with others. 
2 Peter 2.5 says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He's going out saying, hey, it's happening. That thing that I've been preparing for, that you've been making fun of me for, it is happening right now. Noah's dad is alive at this time. And I don't know what kind of dysfunction they have in their family, but he can't even convince his own dad to get on the boat with him. Imagine the kind of conversations that he is happening. He's talking to people about the Lord and it's falling on deaf ears. In 120 years since you know that this is happening, God has come to you and has told you, hey, you need to build this boat. And he's doing it day in and day out. You think you'd really hone your craft of communicating, right? Like you'd become really innovative in the way that you're trying to convince people to follow God and to get on this boat. I saw this video of these two friends and the guy in the orange jacket is in on it. And what it is, is he's got tracks. And so the guy in the orange jacket comes down and he goes to hand him a track. And the guy in the orange jacket goes, I don't want that, get away from me. And the guy hits him, gives him a track. And he goes to the next person, gives him a track. The guy goes, yeah, okay. Do you see what he's doing? He, he, he's, he hits his friend and then the person behind him goes, I don't want to get hit, takes the track. And then, there, then he'll go do a block and come back around. The guy in the orange car goes, hey, you want a tract? Nah, hits him, takes the tract. You want a tract? Yeah, okay. And so it's just this, it's not good. Like, that's totally not how you should do it. But I thought it was really funny. The heart is good. The philosophy is totally wrong. And I just thought it was hysterical. Like, take this or I'm going to hurt you. Bad message. Really funny though. Whatever Noah was doing is probably the same thing. It's not working. But for 120 years, he's trying to convince people, hey, something seriously bad is happening and is going to happen. And if you want to escape from it, escape is available. You can come. It's free. Just trust me. What do you have to risk? Come and join my family in this thing. So the first thing that Noah is doing is he's talking to people about the Lord. The second thing is God appoints a job for him. So he's got this job of beyond building the boat, you need to gather all kinds of animals in this specific quantity for worship, for sacrifice, and for the furtherment of that species. You need to get them all on the boat in seven days. And obviously God encourages them to go there because what a task that would be. And then the third thing that God does is God tells him to get his family on the boat. And so despite the madness of the rest of the world, Noah has somehow led his family in such a way that he gets all eight of them on the boat, including himself, that his sons and their wives and Noah's wife, they all get on the boat. And so for you and me, if you want to be a great man, Noah is a great man in an age when everyone else is choosing wickedness. Everyone else is choosing to go opposite of the Lord. Everyone else is refusing to obey and is in rebellion against God. If you want to be a great man, I think you do what Noah does. He does three things. You talk to people about the Lord. You do your job and you lead your family. That's all Noah did. And notice this about Noah. In these chapters, how much does Noah talk? Zero. How much does God talk? A lot. I think often my prayer life with God can often be me talk, 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 amen, peace. Right? Can't that often be it where it's just me telling God all the stuff that I need and my wants and my hopes and hey, thank you, and then amen, and then I walk away. We need to be people who listen really, really well to the Lord. We talk to people about the Lord. We do our job and we lead our family. And verse five, it says, and Noah did all all that the Lord had commanded him. What happens if Noah doesn't do all that the Lord had commanded him? 
Like God says, hey, you need to put pitch and tar in all the gaps of this boat or water's gonna come in. And Noah goes, you know, I'm really not a tar guy. That's icky. It's just not really my thing. What happens if he's not fully obedient? He dies. I don't know if you remember this show, but there's a guy named Desmond. And Desmond has an alarm set. Every day he gets up and he makes coffee and he goes for a run on his treadmill. He makes himself a light meal. He listens to fun music. Then the alarm goes off every 108 minutes. He goes into the side room where there's a computer. He types in four, eight, 15, 16, 23, 42, enter. How many of you know that? Lost. <laughs> he believes if I don't hit these buttons, in every interval of 108 minutes, the world will end. They never give any explanation for it. That's just what the assumption is. That's what we believe. But if he's not wholly obedient to it, he knows I'm gonna die. Noah, if he's not wholly obedient to the Lord, he knows I'm gonna die. And so for you and me, the story here isn't, if you don't, it, the story is this, partial obedience to the Lord, just doing the parts that are convenient for us, just doing the parts that we like, isn't partial obedience, it's disobedience. Not following the commands of God isn't partial obedience, it's disobedience. Real obedience is I'm gonna do this right away, all the way. But so many times in my life, I just do the tasks that I like. So like in 1 Samuel, you have this story where Saul is at war with the Amalekites. And God says, when you get to them, you need to kill all of them including their animals. You just need to wipe it all off, be done. Well, up until very recently, if you had warriors in battle, the way that you would pay your warriors is with spoils from war. So to say you can't take any of the animals is saying you're working for free right now. So Saul's in a bit of a predicament because he's at war with these people and he's asking all of his warriors to fight for free because God told us to fight for free. And he should have stood by that and he should have enforced that. But instead what happens is he brings the king home the king of the Amalekites home because he wants to parade him around town so everyone can know what a great warrior he is and other nations would attest to, oh, Saul has the king of the Amalekites because he conquered that nation who was oppressing them for a while and Israel overcame despite all odds. And they brought the best animals home because, hey, that just, that makes sense. Like this is just a reasonable thing. It's gonna feed people. It's, a, it's wealth in an agricultural society, in an agrarian, whatever, world. That is how you're gonna feed yourself, fund your life, pay for things is with the animals that you have. So we're gonna bring the best animals home. And the prophet comes in and goes, what are you doing? What's that sound I hear? Your partial obedience is full disobedience. You, you did the wrong thing. And as a result, you're going to be removed. Noah sees that if it's Partial obedience is gonna to lead to death, but full obedience is gonna to lead to life. And so I look at that and I think, well, okay, what has God commanded me towards? What commands has God put on you? What God has, has put on you and me to follow? That I only tend to do as much as I like and not all the way to the fullness, to the best of my abilities all the time. Well, an easy one to point out is, what about love my wife, love my spouse, the way that God loves the church? self-sacrificially, patiently, slow to anger, quick to forgive, faithful. What about when I have a problem with my brother and sister in Christ? 
And yeah, I can talk to them about it, but it's pretty easy to get other people's perceptions and perspectives on it. So I'm gonna talk about them before I talk to them. No, Jesus says, if you have a problem with your brother, you need to go talk to them. That that's full obedience all the way as quick as you can. First John 2, three through six says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. That partial obedience is disobedience. And if we want life and fulfillment, and for our kids to have life and fulfillment, we need to be obedient to the commands that God has asked you and me to do. Otherwise, you end up with sausage fingers. Like I got, you get burned. You, hey, you didn't do what I wanted you to do. You had disobedience, and now... There's pain and there's suffering and there's hardship. And so verse six, Noah was 600 years old when the floods of the water came upon the earth and Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals who are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. So the ark is this massive, massive boat that God had given the blueprint to Noah for to build. I want you to build it exactly like this. It's 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 30 feet deep. It takes 120 years to build. It's essentially as wide and as deep as the Titanic and a little bit longer than half as long. One dude, 120 years. And you think, there's no way. That's not possible. Okay, well, He's a carpenter, he's honed his craft. His sons may have helped. The Bible doesn't tell us one way or another. He could have paid people. He could have had employees who came and helped him and worked. He could have given people money. Because I don't know if you know this, if you gave people money back then, they would show up and do a job. This was pre-COVID. This is, this is not the world we're living in, clearly. But he could have paid people to come and help him build this giant boat. God tells him what to do and how long to wait, and Noah does it. Spends 120 years building this boat, and now he knows seven days the flood is coming, and now it is coming. And verse 11 says this, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were open. So when did that happen? What day did it say? It said, read that again. So there's, it's the 600th year of Noah's life, second month, 17th day. There are people that I really, really like, and I really enjoy listening to them and reading their works that believe that the flood narrative is parable or allegory. If you have a parable, you don't get to know the day and the month and the year. That's wasted text. It's unnecessary. It's not helpful. This is historical something that happened. It happened on this day in this place to these people. It's not allegory. It's not parable. This is a historical thing that happened. People were increasingly wicked. God judged sin. 
God found one person to give grace to. That person begged and pleaded for other people to join him on the boat. They did not, and now the flood waters came. This is a historical event that happened on this day. In verse 12, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And 40 is such an interesting number in the Bible. It's gonna come up over and over and over again. It, it's often used to illustrate atonement or a time of renewal. Like Isaac and Esau, they both get married to their wives when they're 40 years old. Uh, Moses's life is split up into 40-year periods as you study through Exodus, through Deuteronomy. Moses is on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus is being tempted. He's fasting for 40 days before he gets tempted. The spies are sent into the promised land to seek it out for 40 days before they come back and give a bad report. There's all of these instances of 40 that come up in the Bible. And for the Israelites, I think they would have picked up on this because they had just given that bad report, chose to not trust and obey God and to go into the land that God had prepared for them. And now they're being on a 40-year death march until that generation dies before the next generation can be led into the promised land. So what do you think that that generation is communicating to their kids who's about to go into the promised land without them? Hey, trust God. Hey, you need to obey God. I'm not gonna be with you in there. You need to trust him. And so when this text comes up and it says it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, I think that's what's supposed to be communicated to them. A reminder, yeah, we're, being walk, we're walking around in the desert for 40 years because we didn't trust and obey the Lord. Hey, kids, you need to trust and obey God because you're gonna go there without me. And this is so hugely important. And whenever you tell this story to your kids, you need to remember, trust and obey God. I think it's what Noah communicates or should have been communicating to his kids as they're in this boat. You need to be people who trust and obey God. When we disobey God, bad things happen. When we trust and obey God, good things happen and there's life and there's flourishing. Obeying God leads to fulfillment. Disobeying God leads to death and to sorrow. And so verse 13, on the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, and Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his son with them entered the ark. Eight people total. Verse 14, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind. It's where all the creepers come from. And every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. God shut the door. There's seven days, and you can almost picture Noah on top of the ark pleading, guys, come in here. Guys, come, be, come get in this. Bad, look at the clouds that are forming. Bad things are about to happen. It's starting to rain for the first time in human history and people are still not responding to Noah and eventually God shuts the door. These people lived so long that people would have known Adam and no one listens and no one repents and no one turns and the door shuts. There's a day for every single man where the door shuts. 
Hebrews 9 says, people will die once and then face judgment. That we all have people that we are intimately connected with, friends, families, and coworkers that we're around every single day and we know, yeah, they're not on the boat. And is my attitude towards them really like they're not on the boat? Because I know I'm on the boat. The Bible tells me that once I'm saved, I'm saved secure. Once you take a cucumber and you make it a pickle, there's nothing that anyone could ever do to make that sucker a cucumber again. When you accept Jesus, no, nothing in life or in death or principalities or anything evil or anything that you and I could ever do could ever take you out of Jesus' hand. You belong to him. You are safe, secure in his hand. You can never unpickle a pickle. You're on the boat. And you have people that we live with, that we spend time with, that we have holidays with, that we know, yeah, they're not on the boat. It is my attitude towards them like Noah's pleading, saying, hey, you need to know Jesus as your king and as your savior. Hey, there's life to the fullness that you're not receiving, that you're not getting. Hey, you're living in a, a way that is only gonna produce hardship for your kids and difficulty and it's ultimately gonna lead towards death. And one day God is gonna shut the door and there's not gonna be any more conversations and there's not gonna be any more pleading and there's not gonna be a second chance. Do I look at them and do I, do I live my life in such a way to where I act like I'm on the boat. God desires that no man should die. And he died in our place so that we could have life and fulfillment. And it's offered freely to you and me. And all we have to do is take it, taste and see the Lord is good. You can come right now as you are, dirty and wretched and wrong and gross, and God will take you just as you are. And then you'll see that he's good and he'll transform you into the person that you need to be. One of my favorite texts is John 4, where you have the woman at the well. And the woman at the well, what she goes into town preaching, what changes the, the whole countryside's opinion of Jesus is she comes in and she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Hey, there's this guy there's this God who sees the wretchedness in me, the broken decisions I've made, every wrong choice. He knows all about me, all the things that my, the wrong intentions of my heart, my thought life, and he still wants me and loves me and has a hope for me and a place for me and a future for me. That's the kind of God that we have and the kind of God that you and I follow. But so many times I feel like we go into situations and we pretend we're not on the boat to the detriment of those people that we claim to love and enjoy spending time with. What a bummer. And so God shuts the door and there's no second chance. There's no second opportunity and there's judgment. And so verse 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. A cubit is the length from the elbow to the tip of the finger of, of a man. It's like 18 inches. So 18 times 15 inches deep above the mountains is where the ark was floating. Verse 21, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, 
all swarming creatures that swam on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So for you and me, super heavy text. I mean, geez, judgment, there's wrath, there's fury, there's paying for sins. I think there's three things that you and I need to remember. I think there's three things with this text for me that God spoke to me, if I could reiterate them. I believe that God has placed you and me exactly where we're supposed to be in the jobs that we're working, in the people that we have relationship with, with our family members, with our friends, that we've been placed there to preach righteousness through our, not just our words, but our actions and our character and the way that we treat our spouse and the way that we raise our kids and the way that we do home life and the things that we watch and the things that we consume social media wise and all that, that we're supposed to be projecting something that's attractive to those people that say, man, I want what he's got. He's got life. He's got life abundantly. He's got a joy about him. He's got peace that passes understanding. He's got a countenance about him that I desire and that I want and that he's saying is accessible to me. God is looking for people who are gonna say, hey, here I am, send me. Send me into this place. Send me into this neighborhood. Send me into this family situation to bring life to it. We might be surrounded by people who are doing evil things, who are living evil, who, who just don't believe. Just like Noah, we're supposed to be people who continue to preach righteousness even in those situations. To be a great person today, here's what you need to do. You need to talk to people about the Lord. You need to do your job and you need to lead your family. That's what Noah did. That's what saved his family. That's what gave him a hope and a future. That's what he did in obedience to the Lord. He talked to people about Jesus. He did his job and he led his family. And then finally, there's a day when God will deal with sin. And there's only two groups of people. There are people who will be covered in the blood of Jesus or they'll be covered in their own blood. And there's a reality that I think you and I are supposed to, li to live in of there are people that I say that I love, but I don't ask them to get on the boat. Do I really love them? Because I'm, I'm condemning them then. I'm not pleading for you to get on the boat. No, I, I probably don't love you because I claim to have the antidote to all the things that are wrong in your heart. I claim to have the peace that will give fulfillment to your soul that nothing else could ever give you. You're seeking pride and you're seeking affirmation and you're seeking reward and you're seeking money and you're seeking fame and you're seeking attention. And the thing that your soul really longs for can be given to you fully and completely in Jesus. And I'm not pleading for you to have it. Do I really love you? I think the perspective that we're supposed to leave after reading this chapter is, do I talk to other people? Do I converse with other people like I'm actually on the boat and they're not? Because that's the reality that we're supposed to be living in. I'm on the boat, I'm safe, secure. Nothing could ever take me off the boat. I got friends and I got family and I got neighbors and I got people I interact with. 
who I know aren't on the boat. And I never talked to him about getting on the boat. So Jesus, we pray today that we would be people who say, here I am, send me. That we don't just do the things that are convenient, but we follow your commands fully and wholly in their entirety. That we be ambassadors for another kingdom like you've called us, like you've, you've raised us up to be. That we represent your justice and your goodness and your faithfulness and your patience. Jesus, help us to be the kind of people who boldly proclaim truth. That we be people who plead with those that we love, hey, come be on the boat. You need to come see a man who knew everything about me and still loved me and has a place for me and a hope and a future. He wants you just as you are right now. So Jesus, it's in your name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go love your kids.